On this week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about some big city mayoral runoffs, the Trib's civil asset forfeiture project, and Beto O'Rourke's role in a controversial El Paso redevelopment plan. But before we do, I want to thank our Tribcast sponsors. Texas State Technical College, which is the solution to the skills gap in Texas. Find out more at tstc.edu. And the Texas Bankers Association, which represents about 500 banks across Texas. Learn why Texas banks are at the heart of the community at texasbankers.com. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, June 12th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Reporter Jay Root. Howdy. Hi, Jay. Glad to have you back. And Jolie McCullough. Hi. Hello. And uh, we are also joined remotely by our Washington Bureau Chief, Abby Livingston. We'll be calling her in in a few minutes. As always, we'll take questions from our listeners in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it by using the hashtag Tribcast. And speaking of our listeners, we'd love to know how you discovered the Tribcast and what you'd like to hear more of around here. Go to texastribune.org slash Tribcast survey, which is one word, to complete a very short survey about our podcast. We value your opinion and we'd love to hear from you. All right, Patrick, let's start with you. And uh, unfortunately, you had to work this weekend. The mayoral runoff mayoral uh, runoff elections you're watching in both San Antonio and in Dallas. Um, we saw some familiar faces get elected, and I'm hoping you can tell us about them. Yeah, the, the less dramatic contest, uh, we'll start with that one, was in Dallas, where State Representative Eric Johnson, Democrat uh, in, the, in the Texas House, uh, he won the mayoral runoff there pretty easily uh, by, I believe, uh, 12 or 14 points, easily double digits. He led uh, in early voting, led throughout the night. There just wasn't much suspense there. His opponent was a city council member named uh, Scott uh, Griggs, uh, who has been affiliated on the city council in, in Dallas with kind of this uh, progressive uh, anti-establishment faction um, and who was was running a, a kind of similar uh, campaign in the runoff. Uh, in, in somewhat in contrast to Johnson, who had really consolidated a, a lot of support, especially in the runoff from the city's political and business establishment. He had some of that before the runoff, uh, but really a lot of folks rallied behind him. Um, uh, Democratic, Democratic elected officials, Republican elected officials uh, really rallied behind him in the runoff. And so given that, it wasn't too surprising um, with the outcome on, on Saturday night. A quick question on yeah. this. So all of these races are not partisan elections, right. correct? But exactly. we know the parties of these guys. Obviously, Eric Johnson well, was in yeah, the legislature. Sometimes it's more clear than, than others right. because obviously Eric Johnson is in the legislature. You have to you know basically identify, caucus with a party in the legislature. Mm-hmm. He's a Democrat, has a D next to his name. Um, and then uh, in San Antonio, things were uh, a little more uncertain and definitely a closer race. You had the incumbent mayor there had been forced into a runoff against a city council member That's named Ron Nirenberg, the incumbent. Ron, Ron Nirenberg, yeah, city council member named uh, Greg Brockhouse. Um, and it was somewhat, at least to, to some political observers, it was a bit of a surprise that he was forced into a runoff in the first place. Not only that he was forced into a runoff, but that the vote was so close in the first round. He only finished three points ahead of, uh, Nirenberg only finished three points ahead of Brockhouse in the first round. Um, that was somewhat unexpected. And then it ended up being a very close race in the runoff. Nirenberg eked out, I believe, uh, two-point victory. Um, and he now has a, a second term. Um, but what we've seen in, in San Antonio municipal politics, especially over the Fascinating past stuff, uh, yeah. few <laughs> cycles, is just a lot of volatility. Um, this was the third mayoral election where the incumbent mayor uh, was forced into a runoff. 
Um, last time Ivy Taylor, the incumbent mayor, was forced into a runoff and she lost. She was defeated by a city council member named Ron Nirenberg. Right. Um, this time you had Ron Nirenberg forced into a runoff uh, by another city council member and he narrowly hung on. And so just a lot of uh, very politically choppy waters when it comes to San Antonio city politics. And so what do we know about his uh, the politics of his opponent? Right. So this was not as I would argue this race was, uh, a, you know, a little less clear cut when it came to party affiliation. Again, a nonpartisan race, technically Te- uh, right. in the in runoff, name only, probably, you know, right. Nirenberg was definitely the de facto uh, Democrat in the race. I would argue he in the runoff, he was endorsed by the state Democratic Party. Um, so pretty clear choice there. Um, Brockhouse, uh, was definitely the, uh, you know, the, the choice of Republican or conservative voters in the race. Um, but he also had backing from, uh, the labor unions, the police and firefighter unions. He had once, uh, been a consultant for them. And so he's maintained pretty close ties with them over the years, um, including on city council. Um, but you know, both these races in Dallas and San Antonio, big picture, they effectively keep these mayor seats in the hands of allies of Democrats, even if they're not campaigning as Democrats or actively labeling themselves as Democrats. Um, in Dallas, you're going from Mike Rawlings to Eric Johnson. Both those both those guys are uh, the choice of Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, and in San Antonio, you're obviously uh, holding on to uh, the mayor, Ron Nirenberg, um, who, again, is the choice of Democrats. So not much actual change there. Were they echoing similar sentiments because I know like I I read your article and saw that the the opposition in both of those cases the opponents were both backed by like the police and firefighter un- firefighter Yeah, unions. they had that in common. They also <laughs> it's it's I'm always reluctant to draw too many parallels between these races especially kind of because of the wonk the kind of complex nature of the coalition building that happens in these races. But both Scott Griggs and Greg Brockhouse in San Antonio the two uh, you know um, I guess one's a challenger, one was an right. opponent in this case. Uh, they were both making this, generally speaking, making this kind of back-to-basics pitch that the city needs to focus on basic services, um, you know, making sure the potholes are filled, um, making sure that, you know, uh, the police show up when you call them, that kind of thing. Um, and they were not as uh, interested in uh, chasing kind of big projects for the city and, you know, like partnering with the suburbs, that kind of thing. Um and so that was, I think that was kind of a, uh, a through line in, the, in both those campaigns. And I have to ask, in the San Antonio race, did the Chick-fil-A fight come up? The big uh, fight over whether Chick-fil-A should be able to be at the San Antonio airport? It did. It, it was one of the issues. I wouldn't say it was the determinative issue. Um, was there daylight you know, <laughs> between the two candidates on that issue? In San Antonio? Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the, the incumbent mayor, Ron Nirenberg, he had supported that decision as a member, as a Not vote on city them. council. He supported right. that decision. He ended up defending it from a different perspective. He defend, He tried to defend it from a business perspective saying- They close on yeah, Sundays? Yeah, they close on Sundays. Right. So that's money we're not making at the airport. <laughs> uh, so that was his defense after uh, supporting it on the council. Uh, Brockhouse had been against it and had really tried to make it an issue, at least in the initial uh, phase of the can- the initial round of the campaign. Um, you know, he sought to get support and, and got support from conservative, social conservatives who saw it as an attack on religious freedom. He actually, uh, using his, you know, uh, perch on the council, had tried to uh, force a, a, a new vote on it to try to get them to overturn the decision. That was unsuccessful. That was really a hot issue, I would argue, in, in the first round. Um, it became one of, of several issues, I'd say, in the runoff. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Well, speaking of elections, I want to dial in our D.C. Bureau Chief, Fabi Livingston, from Washington uh, to ask about the latest scuttlebutt on a particular 2020 congressional race, one that may or may not involve a high-profile former state senator. Uh, Abby, tell us all about the rumor and innuendo involving Wendy Davis. 
Yeah, well, and uh, a donor basically said that she was about to get in. She has not said this publicly. Um, but the timing of this is very interesting because uh, candidates tend to announce at the beginning of a fundraising quarter, and we're getting there pretty soon. So in July, uh, it would make sense for that kind of timing. What I can tell you is in Washington, there is a sense that she is probably getting into this race. Interesting. All right. Well, so did a friend of hers or this donor at this event just like jump the gun or what do you think this was some kind of intentional leak? I don't get the sense this was an intentional leak. Um, but what I can say is that uh, there, I was surprised. There's much more of an openness to this concept in Washington than I initially expected. Uh, it's looking very real. I think the worldview is that she may have learned a lot of lessons from the 2014 gubernatorial race. And uh, it's a different lifetime from 2014 and the electoral climate back then. So your gut is telling you that she will run um, in light of what you're hearing in D.C.? If nothing changes from what I'm sensing, correct. Yeah. All right. Well, so either way, tell me a little bit about about Chip Roy and how big of a target his seat would be this time around. He's made, you know, a ton of headlines already for a first term Republican, and many of them have not been awesome. Yes. So this is, this district is parts of Austin. I, in fact, used to be a constituent of this district when I went to the University of Texas. And it stretches down the western side of Interstate 35 down into San Antonio, and then it extends west into LBJ country and the Hill country. Uh, it is traditionally a Republican seat. Lamar Smith represented it for 30 years, at least almost 30 years. And uh, last election in 2016, he ran, he carried it by 20 points. That is not what happened this year. Chip Roy is a former chief of staff to Ted Cruz. He is extremely conservative, and he only narrowly won by two and a half points. And so this is a top target for Democrats in Washington, D.C. They want this seat badly. Chip Roy has made several moves in his freshman year that has raised eyebrows. Most recently, he uh, basically deep-sixed deep a bill that would release funding for um, uh, mitigating hurricane damage. He delayed it from passage for about 10 days. It eventually passed, but he was sort of the guy who stopped it on a procedural issue, at least delayed it. So Democrats are licking their chops at this. But what I can tell you is my sense is with Wendy Davis in the picture, there were a number of Republicans who were angry at Chip Roy for doing that. But I think Wendy Davis could help consolidate Republicans behind him. So this, I think, will be the most polarized race, house race in the state. Go ahead, Patrick. I was going to yep. say that that's exactly been my observation too about how this matchup is is coming together. It, it would if it's Wendy Davis versus Chip Roy. I think it, the tone of the general election will be a lot different than the tone of the general election that Chip Roy had last time when he when he faced an opponent, Joseph Kopser, who was very open about being uh, a moderate Democrat, wanting to appeal to Republican voters, and that kind of set a, a little more of a collegial tone in the race. If Wendy Davis gets in, um, you know, as Abby pointed out, it's going to be a much more politically polarized race. I'd argue a much more partisan race. We'll obviously wait and see what kind of campaign uh, she runs. Uh, but she's been long affiliated with the Texas Democratic Party. She obviously was their nominee for governor in 2014. And I don't think it, there would, it would be a little hard to escape just these sharp partisan lines in a matchup like that right. against someone like Chip Roy. Abby, one last question for you. You know, if Wendy Davis does get into this race, do you imagine she would be primary? There would be, you know, a fierce primary on the Democratic side, given, you know, how tight the race was last time and how much attention Chip Roy's been getting? I don't get that sense. Anything can happen, but I think she would be very formidable. And one other point aside, um, I think what's important to remember, even in Texas, where we, it feels like Democrats are on offense in Texas, it's important to remember 
the House Democrats are on defense basically everywhere else in the country. And there is a mantra within the House committees that you protect incumbents first. When you have limited funds, you protect your incumbents. Wendy Davis can raise the kind of money where she may not need as much national help. So she could, she will, she'll probably raise money for the DCCC in her own right. So there are some advantages to this that may not actually involve winning that seat. Awesome. Well, thank you, Abby, so much for joining us. Uh, Before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. The Texas Farm Bureau. Big isn't bad and small isn't better. It takes farms of all sizes and the families behind them to make agriculture work. Read more at texasfarmbureau.org. And the Texas Cultural Trust. Educating the whole child requires equitable access to arts education. Learn more about arts access in your district at artcantexas.org. All right, Jay, uh, one candidate who's out pounding the 2020 presidential pavement, uh, Beto O'Rourke, is the subject of your scrutiny this week. By the way, if I ever come under your scrutiny, I'm just going to call it quits. Uh, You published a big piece looking at his role in an El Paso redevelopment plan that some say is dooming a historic migrant neighborhood. Tell us about this controversy and where O'Rourke stands on it now. Okay, well, as you know, I was assigned in March to vet uh, Beto O'Rourke. I'm not sure who assigned to that. I don't know who it was, <laughs> but anyway, uh, assigned by the Tribune right. uh, to vet Beto O'Rourke um, at a time when, you know, he was flying pretty high, not so much anymore. Um, but we looked at oil donations. We looked at uh, disputed allegations about whether he ran from the cops when he got a DWI in 1998. We looked at his votes in Congress. But one of the the first things that I began looking at as part of this project is probably going to be the last one in this series. And and I started looking at it because there were a lot of reports about this 2006 vote. Uh, he introduced and voted for a redevelopment plan in El Paso, and it was super controversial, and there was all this blowback on it. And it was basically to redevelop south part of downtown, and it would have involved uh, raising, bulldozing, a lot of uh, traditionally um, immigrant neighborhoods, and so there was a lot of blowback and a lot of it got shelved. But one of the things that was fascinating to me when I got to El Paso on this project was there's part of it, part of, of what was in the crosshairs in this 2006 plan was a, a little neighborhood that, that preservationists called Duranguito. I, I've discovered that even the name of it is in dispute. I mean, this is a hotly, hotly disputed uh, thing in, in El Paso. Um, and um, anyway, Duranguito is in the crosshairs and it was put in the crosshairs as part of this master plan in 2006. And then, you know, Beto moves on to Congress and of course now as a presidential candidate. Um, and he was not on the council at the time that they passed the bonds that could be used to do this. Um, and then when they named the location, um, which happened to be the same location as in 2006. Um, but uh, basically you have Two residents left, uh, uh, several dozen were moved out of the footprint. There's more in the neighborhood, but the footprint of where this stadium would go, it's, a, it's, it's basically an arena, multi-purpose, where you would have concerts, sporting events. Um, and of course, you know, now there's all kind of lawsuits. Um, and one of the things that, that's really interesting is that these two residents that are left there, it, that are still in the footprint, are Mexican immigrants. And um, I asked them, you know, what do you think of Beto O'Rourke? And the first thing that both of them went to was, you know, he keeps talking about how he's for immigrants, but we're immigrants. And, you know, he put, uh, he endangered our neighborhood and we want him to 
say something about it. And so one of the things that was interesting to me was that um, because Beto O'Rourke actually supported this master plan, which was spearheaded, by the way, by his his father-in-law, Bill Sanders, who's a multimillionaire real estate mogul, basically. How was he even allowed to vote on that initially? Well, he ended up recusing himself afterwards, but he came under a lot of, of criticism for that at the time. And then that's what a lot of, so a lot of these stories that came out that examined this went into a lot of history about Bill Sanders and how he spearheaded this redevelopment. But there wasn't a whole lot of talk about Duranguito. And what I, that, that was what I thought was interesting about this piece of it is, is that these people are fighting tooth and nail to save this neighborhood from the wrecking ball. And the neighborhood, you, uh, we have some incredible drone footage on our site, which is, by the way, the first time I've ever seen us do this for this purpose. Not just footage of this neighborhood, but footage that like identifies all of these historic entities, including like what, like Pancho Villa's stash house and like, you know, uh, the original Chinese laundry. What are some of the the things that are in this footage? Right, and, and there's a Henry C. Trost firehouse from 1930, Art Deco firehouse. Um, Henry C. Trost is a... Um, a design, an architect who designed a lot of historic buildings. Um, in fact, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Beto O'Rourke's house is a Henry C. Trost house and also had uh, Pancho Villa was in that house at some point, I think with General Pershing. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of history there. But, and, and, and the, the preservationists say, well, we have a Henry C. Trost building here too and we want to save this building. We want to save... Um, there's a, the J.B. Leahy building where uh, Pancho Villa's lawyer, the, the guy who negotiated the terms of his surrender, once worked. Um, so there, there's, there's quite a lot of history in this neighborhood. Now, the, and this is where the fight is just so personal. Um, the mayor, D. Margot, um, said there's nothing of historic value here. And they point out accurately so that um, none of the buildings in the footprint have an official historic designation, but there are a lot of organizations, including the National Trust for Historic Preservation, that calls it, um, that, that refers to it as an Ellis Island of, of you know, the United, a second Ellis Island, basically, wow. where so many migrants came. Uh, the birthplace of El Paso, the first El Paso neighborhood, it's called the First Ward or Union Plaza. Um, and so, but it's an extremely personal battle. What, what I what I also thought was very interesting is we got from the Beto O'Rourke campaign the strongest condemnation of this that they have issued thus far. Right, they did come out and say something, or they his did, campaign they did, did right? yeah. And and they pointed out too as well that um, in 2018 he was asked about this um, in San Antonio at a, a very small town hall event. And he said, I'm, I'm not in favor of putting an arena in Duranguito. Um, but it just sort of went unnoticed. It wasn't even reported, really. And it wasn't, it wasn't in El Paso. And so people are, even, and Senator Rodriguez, Senator Jose Rodriguez from El Paso is firmly against this and is fighting the city. And has said, you know, we need Beto's voice on this. He'll have an influence because he's a favorite son and he won El Paso so convincingly. So they're and, and, asking and for him, for, uh, for they, Beto to weigh in more. Right, they want has. him to come out and say, please stop this. And, and, and one thing that I would like to ask O'Rourke, so Patrick, if you get him out there <laughs> on the campaign trail, is when did he begin to oppose it? Um, and, um, you know, uh, what... You know what? What statement when when he when he says that 
he's always been opposed to it. Like, what, what's he talking about there? I would really like to know that. You've got your marching orders, right? Patrick. Yeah. I was going to say this. This goes. I think this may go without saying too, but it's it's such a fair kind of area of scrutiny considering. Uh, how central O'Rourke has made El Paso to his campaigns, and mm-hmm. particularly his presidential campaign. I mean, he has presented himself as a champion uh, for El Pasoans, uh, mentions El Paso and the issues that he kind of, uh, you know, uh, cultivated in El Paso in almost every uh, stump speech on the presidential campaign trail, um, and has really put himself, um, you know, at the center of the city's um, you know, modern history in some ways. Um, and so, uh, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's a fair, fair question. Sounds sure. like, sounds like maybe Jay, you'll get one of those answers. <laughs> Patrick's out there okay, good. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that project is not the only big one the Tribune landed in the last week. Uh, Jolie, you published the results of months of reporting and data analysis around civil asset forfeiture in Texas, which is a really controversial practice that I'm going to let you explain to the TripCast <laughs> audience. Yeah, so civil asset forfeiture is when um, police and law enforcement can seize people's property, cash, um, without actually having to charge you with a crime. Um, it's a completely separate process. They have to link it they, to suspected criminal activity, but they actually sue the property in civil court, so it has no relation to any criminal prosecution that might go against the person who owns the property or is holding the property. How is that even allowed? Like, I, I mean, I, I, truly, so I'm, let's say I'm pulled over for a traffic violation. You can just, the cops can, and, and they think maybe I have drugs in the car. They can just like seize everything in the car? Um, well, so usually what happens is if, say, someone's pulled over and they have money on, they have cash on them, um, and they suspect in some way that it's tied to, like, selling drugs or it can even be tied to what they think you're going to buy drugs. Um, they can take that cash, uh, and it's written into Texas law. It's also, you know, there's federal laws on this, and ev- a lot of states have different laws. Texas is a little pretty—there's not very many restrictions on it in terms of what they can seize and—, and um, like how they can go about that. Um, and so because Texas police can seize property with next to no scrutiny, uh, it inspired you to get the data yourself. And so you went out and basically hunted for this data for several counties. How did you go about doing that? And what did you find? Yeah, so we wanted to try. So one of the things with forfeiture is that uh, prosecutors and law enforcement have argued against at the Capitol. There's been some efforts to require more transparency. Both and on the right and the left, on, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it very, seems like something like across the board. Yeah, opponents hate. very on the far right, on the far left, um, really are against this program. It's very supported by law enforcement and prosecutors who say- Who are very influential before the Capitol. They're the very influential before the Capitol. <laughs> and they do say it's something that they need to target, you know, we're- we're a border state and money is going, is funneling over to the cartels. And this is one of the most vital tools is what one of the things they often say um, to stop money laundering and drug trafficking um, and to hit the cartels where it hurts when right. they can't get to their kingpins necessarily, um, but they can take away their money. Um, but so there's been a lot of resistance to even increasing reporting on these, on how this process works so they don't have to report to the state what they seize, um, how they seize it, if there's any criminal charge connected to a seizure. They don't have to report any of that. So we decided to look into that ourselves since it's such a controversial practice. Um, And we picked four counties on 
different parts of Texas to kind of get a different idea of how different parts of the state use this tool. Uh, Harris County, which is Houston, and then we did East Texas and Smith County, a border county and Webb, and then rural West Texas, Reeves, where it sits on two major highways. Um, and really it's interesting because so many, they use it differently in, every, in each place. Uh, like Harris County mostly has smaller seizures uh, tied to often low-level drug crimes. Um, and, and overall, and Reeves County is actually the one that prosecutors will probably point to the most, where they have big truck drivers who are pulled over and they happen to have hundreds of thousands of dollars hidden in their cargo. The truck drivers didn't know anything about it because they're just transporting wow. cargo. So they don't want to have to prosecute that truck driver, so they obviously take that money without any criminal charge. So what were the biggest surprises for you in looking at this data? Um, the biggest surprise to me, I think, was how little, like how small the seizures generally are. Prosecutors very often say, like, they target, they go after, this is how we get big money. They often point to cases like in Reeves County where it's hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash or big drug busts where they're bringing in a ton of drugs and also huge bundles of cash. Um, but most of these seizures are smaller dollar amounts um, and tied to sometimes small amounts of drugs. Uh, half of them were under $3,000. Um, in Harris County and in Smith County, I think more than two-thirds, I think were under 10000 So they're generally smaller amounts that are being seized. And in those smaller amounts, like what are, um, you know, what are prosecutors banking on? Basically that people won't have the resources to fight to get their money back or their property back? Well, so this is, this is civil court, right? So you don't have a right to an attorney. Um, and that's a huge point that opponents point out is that um, you have to and it defaults to giving that money once it's filed in court, the money is default it goes to the government. So if you don't fight it, um, say you have $2,000 in cash taken from you and you can't, you you know, you hire a lawyer who would take a big chunk of that if you did happen to win um, or you don't hire a lawyer. If you don't fight it, it just automatically goes to them. If you do fight it, sometimes they have settlement amounts. A lot of times those settlement amounts look like here's, you get X to seemingly pay off the lawyer maybe. Mm -hmm. Um very rarely they do give it all back, but that's pretty rare. Wow. And so uh, I know this came up a bunch during the last legislative session. Like, where do things stand uh, from a policy standpoint, especially if there's, uh, you know, a lot of concern on both the right and the left on this? Yeah. So this is something that it just it hasn't moved much in the in the legislature. Um, there have the biggest push and the most um, the push that has the most attention, I think, is to require a criminal conviction for these types for civil forfeiture cases. In most cases, at least, um, our study found that 40 percent of these seizures don't involve a criminal conviction. Um, and that has really gotten nowhere out. Like they don't pass out a committee. Um, there was some action late in the session this year where Representative Joe Moody brought up on the floor trying to tie it to like tack on amendments to another bill, basically requiring reporting of this. Um, but that, and they actually passed the house, but it was later brought back and <laughs> taken off <laughs> those bills. All right. Well, uh, keep track of Jolie's reporting on this issue, which has really been exceptional. Thanks, Jolie. Um, Patrick, we have just a couple more minutes here. And I just, I want to ask you, so Greg Abbott has been very busy this, in the last couple of weeks. He's been signing a lot of bills. He's been uh, promoting those bills that he's been signing on social media. But he also had a strange tweet this week about maternal mortality, basically accusing critics of the state's maternal mortality rate of lying about it. 
Um, do you have any sense of like what spurred him and and why he sort of uh, took that approach? Um, I don't know for sure. The the irony, of course, there is as we pointed out in our in our story, is that that uh, the maternal mortality rate was based on faulty state data. Um, that revelation was made about a year ago. I want to say I know we covered it here at the Tribune at the time. Yeah, the article he um, tweeted out was a year more than right, a year old. Exactly, and so um, maybe he was responding to someone in his or. or you know, implicitly responding to somebody in his, his mentions who was bringing it up or something. He didn't check the date. Um, but it's, you know, in addition to being kind of, uh, you know, off base with saying that folks were lying about it when it was state, uh, faulty state data, it's also kind of a, uh, outdated, uh, observation or mm-hmm. revelation. Yeah. I mean, my takeaway was it's also like a pretty bad time to be casting aspersions on, you know, I mean, the state has had several data sets of late. If you look at like the voter role review, you know, uh, where the data has not been right. And so to be sort of accusing critics of lying about it, you know, quote unquote, lying about something that was the state's researchers that had pushed out this initial set of Data was seemed well, like hadn't, ill-advised. Hadn't someone like tweeted at him that link like the day before? They, yeah, they may I, have. I, I think someone know. had tweeted at him basically like do more about, you know, you're signing all these bills, do more about maternal mortality. And somebody else was like, yeah, the maternal mortality rate's not as bad as what Texas originally thought it was. Yeah. So it, What's going on with him on Twitter though? Because he seems to, <laughs> to, to show up a lot in my feed lately and it seems to have changed. It, I mean, And I, it's I, like these videos of him yeah. signing bills. Well, that, right? that, but I mean, but he seems to be more active on like and confrontational on Twitter, but maybe, maybe I just I, missed it. He does. I think previous. that's a double-edged sword as elected officials, you know, mix it up more with their followers. You got to be a little more diligent in, in looking at the information that people are pitching your way <laughs> and, and what you're exactly what you're responding to. Right. I mean, um, it seems like it's him too. Like that's the other, you know, I think a lot of times with elected officials, you see some kind of a tweet or like a sloppy tweet that does something outdated and you're like, oh my God, some staffer's getting canned today. (laughs) You know, uh, this to me- Oh yeah, he controls his own Twitter It feels like he's controlling his own account for sure. This is is the one he personally controls. Yep. All right, well, we're going to let you all go back to controlling your Twitter feeds. Uh, That's all the time we have this week. Thanks to the Texas State Technical College, the Texas Bankers Association, the Texas Farm Bureau, and the Texas Cultural Trust, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon, as always, for our theme music. On behalf of Patrick, Jay, Jolie, Abby, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 